Hello and welcome back to the In Squash podcast. I'm your host, Jerry Gibson. This is episode 259, and this one is another one of my personal favorites. I've got a few uh, uh, I like to look back on. Uh, the Kamar Zaman uh, episode, one of my personal favorites. The Squash Newfoundland episode with my boys, uh, Steve Gardner and Dave Feeder from way back. Uh, that was before 100, I believe. And uh, this rates right up there. Uh, Alex is a, a friend of mine, and uh, he talks. Uh, we talk a lot about uh, what he's been up to since uh, he left and before he uh, came to Dubai. We talk about his backstory, but the big thing here on this podcast is the Guinness Book of World Records uh, for the longest squash marathon that he and his friend uh, Mike Pierce broke this past September. Uh, the previous record uh, was 30 hours I believe somewhere around that well Alex and Mike uh, broke that record I think they got got it to 40 and Alex comes on to talk about where the idea to go for the record where that was born from how it all played out uh, the huge team involved in that undertaking the preparation that went into it the aftermath and uh, the future what's going forward what what other ideas they have that or that would be a sort of born from uh, having completed this mission. So, uh, by the way, the proceeds of the event went to uh, the Florence Nightingale Hospice Charity. Alex tells us all about that as well. Uh, just uh, for your information, I have a connection with Alex uh, as our teams uh, competed against each other in the uh, Dubai Premier League while we were both here together. And I always got along really well with Alex. I think we played in the league a couple of times he got me in both occasions i put up a decent uh fight i think on on both occasions uh so and i really like alex a really good guy and it was great catching up with him on the podcast i know you're going to enjoy all the uh, the story uh the backstory his story uh, a little bit about our connection and uh a lot more but the you know the thrust of it all is the world record uh, the guinness book of world records squash marathon 40 hours so uh, there's a lot that went into it, and that's what we're going to be talking about today. But first, let's talk about uh, our sponsor, Open Squash, the squash nonprofit, whose mission is to open squash, uh, open access to squash to the general public. That's how they got their name, Open Squash. It's the expression of their mission statement. Their designation as a nonprofit means just that. They don't make a profit. 100% of the money they generate is put back into making squash more accessible. This happens primarily through their Junior Scholarship Fund and their Membership Support Fund. You should really check out uh, their swag page, by the way, uh, where they have a great selection of tees and hoodies. The Rally On Tea, the Squash You Liberty of Liberty Tea, the uh, wor uh, Wordmark Tea, and the Open Squash Zip Hoodie. Check out the, all of this stuff on the at the uh, link to the uh, the swag page. Check it all out on the website at OpenSquash.org, where all proceeds go towards the Junior Scholarship Fund, the, uh, all the swag proceeds, I should say. Now, let's get this show on the road with Alex Preston talking about uh, his Guinness Book of World Records squash marathon world record, along with his partner, Mike Pierce, here on episode 259. Alex, uh, it's fantastic uh, to see you again, and uh, great to have you on the, on the podcast. Uh, we should have done it uh, a lot sooner, given the you know so many things that we uh, we could talk about but uh, this one is uh, it's huge the uh, the world's longest 
recorded squash match uh, in terms of world uh, the Guinness World uh, Records, and that took place. You went for the record last September, uh, Alex. So we're going to get into that in a bit. But just uh, in terms of maybe people who might not know who you are, uh, give us a little bit of a backstory, uh, uh, if you don't mind, uh, in terms of your squash uh, and and whatnot. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's good to see you too, Jerry. You haven't aged a day, and it's been over 10 years, as you said, <laughs> since I saw you. Um, but I, I did have a squash history before we met, so I guess you're asking uh, where that where that started and where that came from. Yeah. Um, so yeah, really, uh, I felt like I had quite a unique squash upbringing because um, my mum built a squash club, uh, which she, she opened in 1975. So that was six years before I was born. So I was totally born into the squash world. I had no no choice. <laughs> <laughs> um, to to you know to the point where actually it's a bit it's a bit the story begins long before I was born in a way because my mum um, you know sort of staked everything on the idea of building a squash club in the seventies and uh, found herself in a she'd been running a club in Wickham in in Buckinghamshire okay. and she she found herself with. Uh, an opportunity with an investor to build a club in a, a town called Tame, um, where there was no prior squash club, and this is when squash was booming, so it was, uh, it was a pretty good, good opportunity. Um, until the investor pulled out after it was already too late to s- sort of stop, and she ended up, um, re- you know, buying a caravan and living with her husband and four kids. These are my older sibling, ha- older half siblings, uh, in a caravan for you know 18 months while this club was being built um so it was really kind of like like a like a modern day startup in a way that you've got a certain amount of runway and you have to get functioning before you can um start pulling in any revenue and i remember the stories that they they opened a court as soon as they possibly could so they finished the court first and started renting the court out even though the rest of the building was a shell and they had no changing rooms and no showers and nothing but there was such demand for squash that they had some custom um and they were able to start paying off the debt but you know with just by virtue of having a single court Mm, going so uh yeah that's that's kind of where this the story starts for for me even though i'm not on the scene yet um but it was uh really having read some of the reports back recently about when it was built they had one i think one of the first 10 glassbacks in the country Okay, and the the second only um, photography box, which is a compartment that was come built out of the the tin. So obviously the front wall was an external wall, um, and you could go around the outside of the club and get into this tiny box as a photographer. Yeah, and you could take you could take photographs from the context of the tin. Well, we've seen that a lot now, and it's quite easy to do with the full glass court, of course. But that back then it was the second court in the country that had that capability so <laughs> amusingly cutting edge a few clubs in canada had that ability the ability to do that and i always thought whenever i played there i thought well that's really cool but you hardly ever yeah. saw it you know yeah. yeah yeah um so that was good fun the other the other things i read in the newspaper clippings from the the day where it had impressive luxury modern conveniences such as carpets in the changing rooms <laughs> so, you might you might be forgiven for expecting a standard these days but uh no they really they really pushed the the boat out um and it it became quite successful i was born in 1981 so six years after it was um uh launched 
and there was a period of time where we were still live. There was a flat in the club, okay. So I spent some time actually living there uh, in in the downstairs area there, and um, yeah, really, really, yeah, spent my whole life around squash from from that moment. Um, I really first got on court. I suppose I was pr- probably between four and six. Mm-hmm. Um, just you know, go, managed to get a racket and, and get on court, and then um, I've never really looked back t- uh, from from that point. So yeah, that that sounds like sort of a lot. A lot of you know, accomplished uh, squash players. A lot of their parents actually either played or, especially like the like the top like best players in the world. So, uh, in the world, a lot of them, their parents run have had run clubs like guys like Rodney. Martin and and uh, a lot of the Australian, even our, our old buddy uh, Gavin Pennington, I think his his parents ran a ran a squash club. Uh, so yeah, yeah. It, it's quite a quite a common uh, denom- denominator there. But uh, how about your junior squash days? Uh, because uh, how did how did that play out for you? Uh, yeah, so kind of in a way late on the scene with that, which is interesting. Um, so I I didn't really travel outside the club. Um, until to play squash until I was at least 12 and mm. then I didn't really get into that properly until 14 and even then given my parents are so in, 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 embedded and ingrained into squash um, they didn't really have much time or appetite or desire to, to travel me around those tournaments so I didn't actually do much of that right interestingly I just went to the odd big one I did the British closed uh, a few times and I did sort of the local regional tournaments where where, where where basically where they could find another parent from the club to to take me um <laughs> yeah but it, the, the county it, event is that, is that uh, yeah basically what it is yeah yeah, yeah so the, the county event and then you've got like this, these other sort of local local slash regional tournaments that aren't too far away you know right. um but they'd, they'd often look to outsource that to like a someone else in the group uh, <laughs> uh <laughs> which is fine but there's enough like adult squash involved in the club what i had like free and easy uh and encouraged uh, access to um so i didn't play as much junior squash as maybe some other people but i, I certainly played a lot of adult squash and uh got into the sort of the team the team you know pyramid if you will um quite early on that probably just, helped your game a bit i, I would imagine them playing uh, older i know i did a lot of that too and it just sort of helped me m- maybe mature a little bit more yep. as a player and uh Maybe you know. Sometimes juniors can be a little. It can be. It depends on where you are. Uh, could be a little bit easier uh, for you. So then you know, playing those playing the adults. Can truly, definitely. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, you can you with the the junior ecosystem, you can get everyone's kind of coached in a very similar way, and everyone has a similar playing style. And okay that it's not not entirely like that there are variances and there's lots of variety in inside that junior ecosystem but nothing compared to the playing adults right right As a, like i'm playing playing women playing men um you're playing other juniors you just get so much more variety a lot uh, more entertaining to too i found there was quite unique uh, adult uh characters out there uh yeah play play some good squash but they also enjoyed uh enjoyed the other aspects of life as well Definitely, yeah, yeah, uh, lots, of, yeah. So just unorthodox styles and personalities, and um, I think it tests your metal uh, quite a bit more playing playing adults when you're a junior. Yeah, no, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Then, uh, if memory serves, you played uh, varsity squash, and I did have uh, 
your old uh, teammate uh, on the podcast, Stephen Coppinger, I believe. Yes. Uh, yeah. It escapes me. I think it might have been Birmingham. Uh, if I'm... That's right. Okay, good. It was that it was Birmingham. Good. Birmingham. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so talk about the, I mean, obviously you you, you play it at a, at a pretty good level to, to play on that team. Uh, so talk about what those days were like. And I know uh, Coppinger had a few uh, classic an- anecdotes uh, <laughs> uh, from those days. Yeah, no, really good friends with Steve and uh, really remember those days uh, fondly. Um, I did a lot of training with, with Steve. And um, when I arrived, there was actually Jerry Barrington was was just finishing up. Okay. Um, John, John Kemp did yeah. a stint as well at uh, the university. Um, and then in the later days, you've got sort of Jamie Haycox coming in and mm. Chris Truswell. Okay. Uh, Phil, Knight, Phil Nightingale's a name that many listeners may have heard as well. Um, yeah, I, just really fond memories of of playing there. Um, there's been some, I've had some recent chats about the comparison between the US system and the, the UK system. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. <laughs> the US seems to be quite more professional, should we say, in the, their approach to college squash. Right. Um, it's quite quite regimented. You have a training session every single day. It's all quite organized, and, and I, that structure was there, but it was more once a week than than once a day. So you've got to fill the rest of your time with either, you know, either being productive and training, but you're organizing it on your own schedule and your own sort of impetus, um, mm-hmm. you know, or not or doing something completely different. Maybe you're studying or or partying. So you, right. I don't know. yeah. <laughs> How, uh, but those guys were pretty serious squash players. I mean, a lot of the names that you'd mentioned, uh, pretty much all moved on to try to play or and did play on, on the PSA or, or professionally. So, I mean, there might obviously there was quite a bit of partying, but the the squash and, and the training, I'm sure. Uh, I mean, Coppinger, he he was an animal. Oh, yeah, yeah, no, he was yeah. an animal partying and and on the training and on the court. Yeah, he's, yeah. So uh, how how did that play out? I mean, uh, would you party hard, and then in the morning would you uh, train hard? <laughs> so I, uh, there was, uh, <laughs> I mean, that was definitely going on on while at while at university, and that was in full swing. But I think there's a moment with everybody where they decide to do it, or they decide to to not do it and, yeah. and go for it. So I'll discount my my time on the PSA was more. That was ten years later when I was thirty when I when I knew you in Dubai. Um, so that that doesn't count, but the guys, um, as they were graduating and beginning to graduate, and afterwards, they they really decided to to knuckle under. And I, Steve, in particular, told me of a moment where he decided to to really go for it because I, th- I feel like he continued partying, doing doing the tour for a while, and still getting along quite well because Ooh. of his sort of natural talent and and ability to train hard and and desire to win. Well, there, there's um, a period there when he was doing really well. Like he, he was making inroads. Uh, I'm not sure. Yeah, yeah. He probably got to the top. I want to say top twenty, but definitely top thirty uh, in the world. Yeah. And there was a definitely a period where he was, you know, he was. Ma- it was actually right when he retired. I was surprised he retired because he. That's right when he was starting to to collect a few uh, decent scalps, as you guys like to say. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, um, he got up to world number fourteen actually at, at peak. Yeah. Um, I'm definitely referring to times long before this. Uh, <laughs> yeah, in my in my in my, <laughs> in my current current anecdote, when he when he started playing um, after he left university, he started playing um, more slightly more seriously, uh, shall we say? Um, he was still he was still partying a bit and just enjoying it. 
Um, but I think there was a moment where he sort of sat, sat down with his father and because he had a, he kind of he kind of had lost a match and not given his best because he'd he'd gone off the rails the night before perhaps. But he'd worked really hard and spent a lot of money to get to the tournament and worked hard to get to the final. And, and then he sort of flunked it based on not really taking it seriously enough. And yeah. I think it was a moment where it's like, look, I can continue to support you, but you, you've got to um, you've got to treat this like a you know profession. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think there was a there's, a there's a real moment for him where he's like, OK, yeah, you're right. I mean, other people have you know trained hard and got their degrees and now they're focusing on their professions. This is my profession. If I'm you know, if, I, if I'm going to do it, I've got to do it to the absolute best and see how far I can go. And, mm. and uh, so you need to, I think you need to snap out of that university uh, mentality and, and treat it like a job. And, and yeah, you, some people you, never do. Oh, right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, oh. Not speaking for myself. Oh. But, uh... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but uh... um, what, what I found with Steve though, just watching his career was he, he's, this is fairly uncommon. I, I thought, because he, every every year he'd sort of make another he got he got quite quickly up to say 70 and then every year he'd sort of make another 10 places right it's 10 places it's just consistency of that i didn't see that very often and i just remember that the bottles of champagne we'd open every year he'd visit us in dubai because it's passing through and they were particularly good years for him getting 10 places each year we'd celebrate with the champagne every time he came through and we'd celebrate 50 so he said it's all of 10 if i make it 10 we we break open a bottle of champagne that that was it right well, it was it was our gift. Yeah, set your yeah. goals low, and then <laughs> <laughs> then you can achieve them, right? <laughs> yeah, but yeah, obviously, uh, you know, once he did, you uh, I guess having been around him that that much, you must have uh, seen that he had the ability to to do more, though. Oh, you definitely, yeah. I'm honoured to have seen him go from very very like when he turned up, I beat him. Let's just put it that way. It was, it was, it was uh, interesting to see how he, how he surpassed me and then surpassed most of the people uh, on the planet as well. So just to watch that journey uh, was, was really good. The racket skills he had was just uh, just phenomenal. And they just, yes. they just seem to keep, keep getting better strong, as well. Like like one, what your your prototypical South African big strong guy, you know, the, mm. his motor, you know mm. strong, athletic, uh, played, played squash that way too, uh, from what I could see. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, you know, uh, moving on, um, you from there, I guess, uh, I'm not sure where your where your career path went, but I know you wound up at some point in New York City. And that's where your sort of your next squash, I guess, destination or you're beyond your you're beyond um, Birmingham. It took you to uh, New York. So uh, how did that all uh, uh, come together for you? And what was your your New York experience uh, like? as compared to what you were used to. Yeah. Um, so interestingly, it's probably the first major move I did that, that wasn't or major move or decision or thing in my life that wasn't squash driven. Going to Birmingham was, was very squash driven. Um, but having left Birmingham, I graduated in, uh, with a master's in software engineering and computer science. Um, so I was, as you said, the, the only person from that cohort not to pursue an immediate professional career. Uh, but I got a job in in software engineering, uh, and that that's really what took me to to New York. Um, and I managed to move at the same time as as Joe, my girlfriend at the time. So we managed to sort of both co-locate uh, at the same time. But why have I said all that? Um, what I'd, I, I guess because I knew we were moving to to New York, and you have sort of several months to sort of plan that that journey. What's cool about 
squash and maybe some other sports that have kind of a niche feel to them is that you can like ring ahead mm. and sort of lay lay the groundwork and get on the forums and, and sort of just just chat to people about which club you might want to join what the what what the kind of events what's the scene like yeah, what kind of yeah. tournaments are there what's is there a, is there an adult league you know you can do all of that and you can basically make friends and relationships long before you've even committed to going it's mm. like i mean you get there you you know who you're meeting you've got you've got 10 people to sort of ring around and, and play with um i think it's it's phenomenal that while this is a it's a global sport it also feels very local mm, absolutely especially when when you get there um i was lucky enough uh, when we when we first got there i think even in the first week i was there i was lucky enough to get an invite from Alan thatcher to play in the derek swords trophy which i okay. think he mentioned on yeah. when he when he was on your show recently um which is a phenomenal event for so many reasons um but on on the ground in it, experiencing it for itself like what a way to meet people uh like a, oh, yeah. it's like a f- 15 at least a 15 aside match between london and new york so yeah and, th- and that that was my real on the ground icebreaker to, to meet people so that was a real good leg up so i was really i was really appreciated being invited to play in that thing yeah that that, that would have been amazing the, the 9-11 uh squash uh event that's right yeah yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Okay, and uh, so so you played a bit of squash there. You, you played league, and you played you played some tournaments. So New York City's, I guess, Philadelphia, New York, Boston. Uh, it's sort of, I guess, in relative terms, it's it's thriving right now. The, the yeah. game. Was it like that then for you? I think it was. It was back then as well. Yeah. yeah. Um. So it's a really good. Um. So having sh- shopped around all the clubs we were going to join after we got there, there's a, there's a bit of a variety. You've got the there's the odd sort of the what Heights you might Casino. call it. Yep, yep. Heights Casino. Yeah. You had the old printing house. Yeah, um, yeah. Great story had... about that one. They they tore, they were going to tear it down, or they did tear it down, right? Was, uh, yeah, yeah. I think Bob they... Dinnerman told that one on here. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um. So you, you've got you've got those types of clubs. Then you've got the. New York sports club, which is more of a gym chain, which ha- some of them have courts. So you've got that kind of feel. Yeah. Uh, then you've got the old university clubs right. where you, you sort of need to know someone and yes, yeah, sort of have to be in, interviewed. And, but once you get in, they're, they're just brilliantly done. Uh, really nice to, to be in. Um, so you've got Harvard club, Yale club, Princeton club, that, that kind of thing. Then you have even more exclusive versions of that yeah. Um, yeah. where you when I was invited to play a tournament at one of those by a good friend, Thad Roberts, who was the pro there at the time. And uh, I said, oh, can my girlfriend come to watch? Uh, and he said, he said, yes, with a caveat <laughs> that because there's areas of the club that women aren't allowed to be in, um, she can only watch on sort of the fourth court. Okay. And she has, yeah. to, and she has to, and she'll have to take the back entrance to it. So <laughs> I was like, oh, yeah, the reason being because um, the, the whole the whole floor is the whole floor of most of the other squash courts was like an open floor with just open changing rooms and glass backs and you know really nice changing rooms with sofas and fridges yeah. with beers and but showers and guys you know, walking just, around with towels on exactly you got yeah exactly so it's like just <laughs> it's men only uh so that sort of yeah. stuff so, you know existed then probably still does um but then i asked joe if she'd like to come and watch you know the the early round plate matches only 
on the back court. She said no. <laughs> so that was, but that was a that was a unique tournament. Um, another one in a similar vein was uh, the it's called the Far Rockaway Hunting Club in Long Island. Okay, and this is just Far um, Far Rockaway Hunting Club. I think it was called Far Rockaway. Yeah. Okay. Um, so that was organized by I think it was like it's a, kind of like a members club, like a really nice kind of country club with with courts and paddle and tennis and all yeah outdoor stuff as well mm-hmm. but they they they'd put on a tournament every year um and invite the best people they they'd heard of in the city at the time to to come out and play that they had like some guest pros as well that were actively playing so it was a real mix of people but really high standard um but all kind of fully fully comped with food the whole time and co- accommodation and you stay with a member it was like mm-hmm. an amazing experience to be invited out to that and, and playing that yeah, New York. I mean, I, I've had, I don't know if you've met him, Rob Dinnerman. He does a lot of the writing for, he used to do the the doubles write-ups for Squash Talk, yep. the old website. And uh, I always used to love reading those, but I've had him on several times. And just the stuff, like the history that he has of not only New York, but the 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 area around it. It's so deep and rich, uh, squash history yep. in that part of America. And it's it's fascinating to me especially when it comes from a guy like him who knows, you know, knows everything about it. Uh, I, I probably knew him better from his writing, but I did meet him a couple of times while I was, while I was in New York uh, yeah. in the, in the squash scene. He, he, his uh, writing's he fantastic. Get... Uh, he, he's the, the master of the run on sentence. <laughs> he, he did. So he, um, the, I, I, uh, I was lucky enough to win another tournament that was in in New York, and uh, he I, I made one of his articles. Oh, so he okay. gave, gave I'll, me I'll look he, for that one. <laughs> he gave me. I should be tough to find now. It's two thousand five, but um, he he described me as having a particular style of blue collar squash and <laughs> carrying it, carrying a few extra pounds. So, <laughs> So, <laughs> I thought it was a bit harsh, but uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, he he. There's no shortage of uh, metaphors and uh, descriptive writing with it with his uh, with his style, which I that's, which is why I like reading it. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, um, <laughs> that blue collar approach, blue blue yeah. chip. Uh, was it blue chip talent? Blue collar approach, something like that. He described it as blue collar squash. It was okay. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, so from New York, uh, we crossed paths, uh, and I, I kind of remember the first. Uh, it was right around, probably would have been right around when you first arrived. It was a league, Dubai mm-hmm. league match, and you described how you described New York and moving there was basically how I sort of managed to find my way uh, in Dubai. Like I, I just got in contact with the, the UAE. Uh, there wasn't a federation, but people involved with it, uh, mm-hmm. guys at the Dubai. Now, just it was about a year after I arrived, they closed at Dubai Country Club. And that was sort of yep. the epicenter of, I think, uh, Dubai squash anyways. And yep. that's where the Dubai threes were held. And I think we missed the glory days by a couple of years uh, because once that place shut down, things sort yeah. of fell apart. We we got a little bit of good stuff, good squash there when we were, when we had met in a few years after. But uh, as you know, things weren't, always uh always smooth and easy but uh yeah talk about uh dubai and and how you wound up uh up there and your your squash experience there yeah um so when did you arrive in 2007 it was seven okay yeah so we arrived in late late 2008 um 
yeah so i again i i picked up all the legend of the dubai country club and the dubai threes but uh yeah. never saw it myself um yeah, i actually we... got to play at the dubai country club it was like the first place i played there when i when okay. i arrived a couple of guys invited me to play and then it was gone like a few months later they just tore it down mm-hmm. So. Mm-hmm. um how we arrived in dubai um the the company I was working for in New York, uh, the software engineering company, we um we had an intent to set up a London and a and simultaneously a Dubai office. Um, so I was offered to go back to London as a sort of a good idea to send the the British guy back to start that one. Um, but mm. I I'd rather have not gone back just then. We we're really enjoying being expats, so we'd had spent three years in New York at that point. Uh, so the option came up to to go the Dubai route. So went went for it, and my wife my then girlfriend became my wife on the way to dubai shall we say okay. not in any kind of not in any kind of desperate way but we we figured if we were going to get married we should probably do it by the book and do it before we arrive in dubai just because of the so the did, way the cult... did you do a stop in las vegas or something or? i've made it sound like that haven't i <laughs> um <laughs> so the you know these international relocations take take many months so it was by no means uh, a rush job but it, it it all happened within the confines of 2008 okay um yeah. so we decided we were moving in just sort of january um i proposed in sort of february or maybe yeah february march and got married in august and then we arrived in dubai in in early october Okay. So we we spent the summer in London, just sort of c- c- detaching yeah. from New York, coming back home, doing some stag do's, uh, getting married, and then and then went off to to Dubai. Uh, so uh, October two thousand eight. So I did the I did the, the whole playbook again. I sort of rang ahead, figured out who's who. Um, Darren so Bradbury. Who was who? No, that that was the whole yeah. thing. No one knew yeah. who was who. That 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 was the the whole issue with with. Dubai, mm. and they still don't know who's who. Yeah, fair enough. Well, so <laughs> you know, I I just put out some feelers, and then you yeah. you know on Facebook, Facebook was just coming into being then, so you could put put some feelers out like like that. And uh, I got put in touch with Darren Bradbury, who's a yeah. uh, a good good very good player from from yesteryear uh, from the UK, but he was coaching in Dubai. Uh, but I, all paths lead to Andy Staines is is what I discovered. Yeah. Uh, uh, so yeah, he was the man. I'd call him the god, the godfather of UAE squash. Yeah, he he was uh, yeah. he was the chairman of the Dubai mm. Country Club, as far as I know. I think he was. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. So you know, you suss it out. You figure out which clubs you you probably want to join. Make a short list of the ones you want to go and see, and and you you already know who you're going to meet on the ground for the most part. Um, it was. I guess in New York, I found lots of people because I think that's a real back then. It was a real destination for anyone from Britain going to to coach there. So there were more ties. It was a bit thinner on the ground in Dubai, but that's partially because you've Dubai is like a worldwide meeting point for me. Yeah. Whereas New York is more of a very westernized, obviously. Yeah. Um. So there was while. There were people that we kind of already knew and were connected to on arrival in Dubai. You've got all people from India and Pakistan and and the Middle East itself to to get to know, and, and you wouldn't necessarily have an existing connection to until you get there. Yeah. So that was quite a fun element to the Dubai scene. 
Yeah, there, and uh, what I found, what I discovered is uh, there were a lot of good players, like guys who, you know, there was another Paul, I don't know if you knew him, uh, The uh, not the Paul Johnson from the P PSA Squash TV, but the other uh, Paul Johnson who'd won several British national junior titles himself. He, he but he hurt his knee. He, he, he tried playing a bit, but uh, he was around. He had a guy like, uh, well, obviously Adel, Adel Mackbull. Yep. Uh, I mean, he was one of the top juniors in the world when he was, uh, you know, 15, 16, one of the, and he just an extremely talented uh, player, shot maker, uh, Gavin Pint. Gavin was a uh, Pennington. Mm -hmm. uh, yep. Tremendous for a guy when when we were playing against him, he must have he was close. He was over two hundred fifty. He had to be over two hundred fifty pounds. <laughs> a big he was boy. huge. Uh, he was, yeah. and, and he would move. And he, his ability to get around the court and was just impressive. I I, I couldn't yeah. believe. It. Yeah, no, really nice player. Yeah, uh, <laughs> I I particularly remember Asif Khan. Yeah, very yeah. talented. Oh, very, very talented. talented. And, and quite charismatic. Uh, I like of, uh, I like Asif. And and of course, Fahim. a lot of talent for such a small package. Yeah, Fahim as well uh, at the yep. uh, Le Nasser Leisureland. Uh, I still remember yeah. that match. Uh, I think it was the semifinal of the uh, UAE Open. You refereed it, but then you were playing the winner. It was me and uh, Fahim. I don't know if uh, that, yeah, yeah. That uh, was at the. It was, great. It was a great match. Lakes Club, right? Yeah, that was the Lakes Club. Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 Um, Went to five. The, it, it, <laughs> he uh, it was so controversial all the way through that match that he's still digging out photos of frames and putting them on Facebook and saying, "Was this a let? Was this a stroke?" Yeah, yeah. Because that's a running joke. We had a we had a photographer. So there were a lot of yeah. <laughs> but yeah, you did you did a great job. I, I thought uh, um, there was one the one where he uh, I think the ball was. It was in. It was a front court let where he was trying to get a stroke. I think he he deserved the stroke to be fair, uh, and you gave it to him. <laughs> okay, that crucial sound point. Controversial crucial at all. point in the match, Alex. <laughs> <laughs> where was the video referee then? Oh, yes, <laughs> he, he would have. He would. It would have been upheld, I'm sure. But uh, but yeah, the squash, <laughs> the squash scene there was uh, in Dubai. I mean, uh, one really good thing about it, I, I felt, was the venues. We had some really yep. great venues. I mean, uh, in the in the league, we had uh, Jumeirah Beach Hotel. Uh, the courts were fine. The, the 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 setting though was amazing with the Burj uh, right next in right next to the club. Uh, mm -hmm. The the other uh, squash facilities along that beach there. The Aviation mm -hmm. Club, which is iconic for uh, they host the the tennis every year, the ATP uh, tennis yep. event every year, and that. Um, the locker room in there you can see all the past champions and their you know pictures with the trophies and, and things but that that's a, a great venue and then just some others uh around uh deeper into the sit like uh fahim's club the leisure land club which was a yep, yep. uh, I, I thought quite an interesting uh venue he'd, he'd always turn the heat up <laughs> when you uh... which was ironic because there was a there was an ice rink out the back as well like as part of the yeah. same facility which is oh, yeah. I said that because it's the same airspace as the court. It's, it's, yeah. If you go, you go back to where we sometimes ate the match meal, you could see this is the ice rink, and but they'd still turn up the heat on the court just for that extra edge. For that extra edge, exactly. They they didn't think we were fit enough to handle it, but uh, <laughs> little did they know, right? <laughs> but um, 
But uh, yes, the so India Club as well. Don't don't forget. India Club, yeah. I think, we've, yeah, we sort of touched on this sort of multicultural nature of Dubai, but it was an inherent in some of the squash teams, right? So you had the India Club, you had the Pakistanis at the uh, Al Nasir yeah. Um It was like, it had all these elements coming together and, and a, a just really enjoyable um, and engaged and friendly community Absolutely. for the most part. Yeah, it was a, it was a lot of fun. It was a good, it mm-hmm. was a good time. I'm, I just wish they could have somehow the politics was very there there were issues with that and with running sort of not not only the league but just squash in general it's, it's still suffering here there's no sort of uh, one person who or one sort of organization that that's running it as far as i can see that that's trying to like there's no junior program there's no senior program there uh, i have really no idea uh, what's going on in terms of the federation and, and i think what um we just had the World Squash Federation president on um, Will, Will, Zena, Zena Wood, uh, Woolbridge, and uh, you know she was just talking about some federations were are more difficult to communicate with mm. than others, right? And trying to bring them on board. So uh, I think that this is definitely one of those uh, uh, places where there, there's not much of the not much communication uh, going on between the players and the the community and the federation. So uh, mm-hmm. maybe that's improving because there, there do seem to be more uh, junior programs around now um, run by young Egyptian, good, good players. So we'll mm-hmm. see. We'll see how it goes. Yeah. Well, Fahim looks like he's doing a, a great job with some really high quality juniors. If there's YouTube footage is anything to go by. You must have yeah. quite a lot well, of juniors. Fahim's now, Fahim and Asif are both in New York, I think. Oh, both in New York. Oh, I see. Yeah. Yeah, oh, I didn't know for him was. Oh, right. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's there as well. I, uh, I think it's new. Yeah, they're both in New York, or one of them might be in Philadelphia, but they're both uh, stateside. So, huh. yeah. But uh, Alex, you're you're here today. I, I mean, we've, we've been a bit long winded about your backstory, uh, but you're you're here today uh, to talk about your world record, and uh, it was um, the Florence Night. The, the your the charity behind it is mm. the Florence Nightingale. Hospice. So, uh, first of all, before we, uh, you know, why, why don't you just take us into how how uh, where it was born from the idea to um, to go for this this record? I I think you had a friend who had done it uh, previously, right? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, well, I'll start with the the hospice, and we'll sort of get that that part sure. done. Uh, <laughs> and because the story goes back a little bit further than before the. The idea for this was even conceived, so that it should it should all join up in the end. Um, but essentially, um, my mum, who I sort of talked a lot about at the beginning of the show, who who built the squash club, um, unfortunately lost her, her battle with cancer in uh, twenty twenty one, which is yeah, kind of kind of heartbreaking timing because off off the back of all the lockdowns as well, was yeah. just we were just we were just beginning to come out of it. So, uh, and she'd been diagnosed shortly before the lockdowns. So, it's just a horrible period for 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 her and 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 all of us, really. Um, so that 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 was she spent some time at the Florence Nightingale Hospice, and um, at the end, and she dedicated part of her legacy to to supporting that. Okay. Um. So immediately, immediately, we we not immediately, but we wanted to do something. Um, and one of my employees and long-term friends from school, uh, he he suggested we do like a half marathon, um, 
we both train for it and sort of focus on that and it's a good way of you know just processing it and doing right. a challenge like that so we did that and we at the local local sort of running festival Wendover Woods and gradually we just got more and more people involved in it and we ended up with having 40 people who who knew my mum or were part of the family or or whatever and or friends or members of the squash club that that she built like we all just joined in and just ended up we raised uh, eight and a half thousand pounds for the, for the okay. hospice. Yeah. We didn't really set out to do anything like that. We just, it just sort of snowballed from there. Um, so we sort of, I don't know. We, I felt like we wanted to kind of continue that momentum because it felt really good that we'd all, we'd all done that. We, we, we did the, we did the running and we had a big planned party for mum at the, the squash club and it just, it just all, all felt really good. So we um, combined with that, my, my main company, which I now have run my own software company, uh, Intrepid, um, we've, we've been donating 10% of our profits to charity uh, since 2018 with no real goal or aim, just wanted to do something like that. But now we've wrapped all that into um, a foundation to honour the, the passing of my mum. That's why we founded it, but it's not the reason we're going to continue it per se, called the Begone Doll Care Foundation. My mum was okay. all about stepping out of the, the norm. All about stepping out of the, the norm. She did yeah yeah she she built the club from from nothing and the caravan story tells it all i think uh i mean exactly <laughs> in in later life while i was growing up she was doing 400 kilometer bike rides around the grand canyon she was doing machu picchu tracks and this is all for charity so she's really pushing the boundaries um given that she was this was quite old for such an active mum i thought she was just active but when she died, I sort of realised she was a lot older than all the other mums of my my peers, but she didn't act like it. She was just very, very active and always challenging. So we built this foundation to honour that, and we're continuing to plough up ten percent of profits from my small company in, into that. And we've got other corporate sponsors, and it's all it's all got a little bit of momentum. Hmm. So that was all backstory to get to this moment where well, I, another I can friend see the connection for uh, you know going towards something kind of unique like what you were trying to do that that's the connection with your mom yeah. right yeah yeah but what what sounded like a good thing and, and sounded like a strength was actually a sort of a moment of weakness which was exposed by one of my long-term school friends squash player buddies who we've just uh, known for a, for a really long time met him on the first day of secondary school uh name's mike pierce uh so as, as all this was excitement was dying down um, we were he we we played squash at Tring because um, he's sort of recently got back into squash in the area and he was uh, we had a little friendly game and he was dropping me back at my house which is you know five minutes from from the squash club and like on on the way back he sort of just pops this question of you know do you, knowing that we've got all this challenge thing going on that's, that's sort of budding to, to become this massive thing and it was it's for other people going forwards not not just me <laughs> he's like do you, and he, he, also, I should say, he's a very reserved man. Doesn't talk much. Doesn't really push the boat out. You know, just it's like, do you fancy breaking the world record for the longest ever squash match? Like he knew what the answer would be, um, <laughs> but he didn't know how long I would take to answer it. Like right. I had to run it by the family, think pretty hard about it. Like you don't want to undertake something like that without mm. you know, knowing knowing you can do it. You don't want to do it half heartedly. Were you? Did you know about this world record previously? Like, were you aware of what the record was? Or, uh, yeah, yeah, we certainly were. Um, okay. So, back in two thousand and twelve, actually, 
uh, the record, funnily enough, was broken at Tame Squash Club, which was the the club my mum founded, uh, by another friend of ours, Darren Withy, and Guy Fotherby. Um, Darren is now a very good Masters player. Um, but yeah, he they had the whole club and community come together and 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 break the record then, and then it stood at thirty one hours, I want to say. 31, 33 hours, that kind of uh, area. Um, but it was an enormous community effort to, to get that done. And for my part, I came to Mark for an hour, referee for an hour uh, at 2 a.m. or whatever. That was, that was sort of my contribution at, okay. at that stage. But I'll tell you what, it, was, it didn't inspire me to want to do it or anything like that. And I had, it wasn't further from my mind. Um, but then when Mike suggested it, uh, the fact we were familiar with someone who'd done it, we'd sort of seen it happen, um, you know, 10 years earlier, um, meant we, you know, we knew it was possible. Darren can do it. <laughs> 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 um, so yeah, it was, it was all Mike's idea. Um, but, uh, I'm glad, I'm glad he asked me and, um, yeah, I'm, I'm really pleased with how it, how it obviously turned out. So what, what was this, what sort of, I mean, obviously you'd seen as a referee, you'd seen what the guys had gone through uh, at that, whatever stage it was in the, whatever time it was in the match or, I mean, obviously you must've seen what they'd been, had to go through. So uh, uh, what sort of prep uh, did you, uh, did you do in the lead up for it? And I guess you, did you uh, communicate with those guys or was this a, like a competitive thing? Were they not willing to reveal their secrets or, uh, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, there's some. There are some. Yeah, some points to make there actually. Um, uh, so the prep. Yeah. So I'll talk about how we. Let me talk about the prep, and then I'll come back to the communicating with previous people because there's a story. There. Perfect. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's hard to train for, right? You can't replicate the experience of playing squash for forty hours um, very often, and oh, you can't do it without a massive team of people. So. Oh, actually a one-for-one run-through is is just not feasible and that you know that's why it's challenging um so our approach was to sort of replicate playing squash for you know multiple multiple hour stints um far beyond what you traditionally do for 40 minutes 60 minutes um the longest one we did was only only really six hours um but you know that that was long enough it 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 could fit into the kind of like an afternoon evening Right, so it was you know socially convenient, um, and it was long enough that you'd have to take on nutrition, you'd have to change clothes, you'd have to shower, you'd have to sort of do at least a couple of like pit pit stops, yeah, basically, and that and that's what you're really practicing, that's what you're really training for. You're getting used to the food intake, um, you're just exercising those routines. You're going to need to sort of lean on um, for you know forty hours. You're going to do we did you know. Um, 15 or so breaks okay. so we, yeah we, we just to make sure that you're able to do do everything you need to do really quickly and and, and make sure your body is responding nicely and six hours was i mean it turns out just about long enough to to replicate that but we did um we did a three hour a four hour a five hour and a six hour or something something like that you know aside from just playing lots of squash and we did lots of running uh two half two half marathons is not not particularly not particularly prep for it but we, we both did that kind of experience um mike stayed up for 40 hours straight okay um which he, he didn't tell me he was doing but we we had a weekly kind of status call for the for the project because it really was a project and uh 
he sort of just lets he's just very quiet and reserved he just lets it i've i've been up for 38 hours and you know, i'm doing all right you know so, <laughs> yeah. so thanks thanks did, for telling me did would, you try did you uh do that no 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 yeah. i was I, I i've stayed up all night before i know it, it can be done um yeah, yeah. <laughs> but he but he, to be fair he was kind of exercising every hour within that as well and trying to sort of hold down the day job of working he works in software as well and um it worked for him and he, he got through it and i think that was i think maybe if that was his worry about you know alertness and staying awake yeah could conquer that fear make sure you can do that and okay yeah. for me it was just taking on enough nutrition so i really wanted to just practice like it sounds weird practice eating yeah, um yeah. <laughs> so both within within the confines of the challenge but also getting used to the type of food you're going to have to eat uh just just regularly so there's a company in tring where we did the challenge where i live um called huel which is short for human fuel okay yeah. and they they provide food for not not, not just ultra marathon runners but like long-term multi-day endurance events type stuff and it's it's basically a fancy pot noodle, um, but it's you know all round nutritious with protein as well. And you just had hot water, and you can basically drink it. Okay. And they they do they do shakes and other sort of protein bars as well and stuff. They they, they sort of donated a lot of free food to the to the challenge and essentially sponsored it from from that side. Brilliant. Yeah. But what I, what I didn't want to do was turn up on the day, rock up with like tons of this stuff and just start consuming it. I yeah. wanted to sort of eat it in the months and weeks beforehand just to sort of. I don't, you don't want any surprises, do you? To acclimatize, yeah. 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 Uh, so how did that play out? I mean, uh, obviously, you did you did you get any intel in terms of, of you would have spoken yeah. to people about, you know, how, how to eat, when to eat, how much to eat, um, when not yeah. to eat, um, things like that. So how, what sort of intel did you have there in terms of your nutrition? Yeah. Uh, so we had a... A really good friend called Nigel Patterson, who uh, is a squash player as well, and he he was around when Darren did his his first challenge ten ten years before. And he, uh, Darren is uh, Nigel is essentially a like an ultra endurance coach now. He sort of right. carved out a niche, and he's really he's his driver is something else. He's just you know sixty k on his bike before breakfast. Uh, that's just a standard day. Um, so he, he was able to advise us and give us lots of kind of advice on what what kind of nutrition works and you know not too many carbs can't take on too much uh little and often um little little and often okay little little and often yeah yeah so like keeping a a date bar in your pocket and actually eating like having a bite pair rally kind of thing getting Mm -hmm. in there like taking a sip of water or some other electrolyte based I just wonder, is that on the pro tour? Is that would that be illegal to to bring the the chocolate? To, I don't I don't think so. I don't think so. Um, no, but would it benefit you though? Um, no, I'm just wondering. Just yeah. generally, is it is it? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. I don't. I don't know. I mean, you're not allowed to really do it. You know, you're allowed to towel but, off but, you know, but, on the rally. Yeah. But, but based. Just based on club rules, you're not supposed to take food on court. But I guess we we've yeah, got that, a special yeah, that, special that pass. Right. Yeah, no, that <laughs> that, that, that could be it right there. Yeah, no food allowed on the court. So there you go. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We got a pass for that. <laughs> <laughs> of course, yeah, yeah. But uh, <laughs> but uh, so take us through sort of uh, the thirty the record you you got yeah. you got the thirty eight hours. Is that right? Thirty was it? 
Uh, well, so forty. Is, sorry, forty. Yeah, that's right. right. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, it's a record that seems to be broken every three to six years. Okay, and um, is it predominantly UK-based uh, record? Like, uh, uh, not exclusively, uh, no? but, but largely. Um, there was certainly yeah. it was held by, uh, a, I think, a father and son pair in New Zealand. Okay, uh. for for a while, I think that they they got the thirty-five hour mark. Um. Then it was broken by a chap, uh, Jamie Barnett, and his partner. Uh, I have a name, I can't remember now. Um, but in um, Barnt Green, which is in, I think, Worcestershire. So that was 20, sort of 15, 2016 era. Um, and they got to 30 hours. Okay. Uh, just over. So that was the that was the existing record. Um, so in terms of getting advice from, from previous people, we, we had this panic... Um, in the run-up, probably in the last 10 days, maybe a week, um, of do the breaks count or not? So right, the, yeah, the, yeah. the ruling is you, you get five minutes rest for every 60 minutes of continuous play. Okay. okay. So, you, so where, who made these rules? Like, uh, where do these rules yes. <laughs> where yes, do they a, come from? <laughs> so Guinness uh, sort of accredit the world record, and they have basically a – a, a marathon endurance marathon sort of set of rules okay. and it's the same for every it's the same for every sport basically so you do an hour of continuous play and you get five minutes off and there's other sort of rules that contribute into that and then there's some sport specific rules but they're they're fairly light they just you just have to be actively playing the sport with a referee present and you know um, <laughs> Keep, keeping score where they <laughs> how many like did they, did you guys actually keep score and yeah like yeah. uh, how many games were played during that? Yeah, uh, it was about six hundred games. <laughs> okay. In total, yeah. yeah. No, so yeah, we we had uh, a, an on GT official and well, a marker and a referee, which yeah. acted as witnesses the whole time. We had uh, in shifts. We had like a what we called a helper, but they're really like an on duty project manager. Uh, they they did four hour shifts, and they were they were in making sure everyone was doing their job, um, recording all the evidence, documenting it, signing off the witness statements, okay, uh, ensuring yeah. ensuring that the triple cameras were functioning. So we had three different video feeds to make sure we didn't miss it. We, you make, make sure the clock was visible in the feed and the clock was still ticking. And that we had um, our break, our, our minutes break were being tallied up. Those five minutes we earn every sixty, you know, that was written on the back on the glass back, so we knew what the breaks were. Yeah. And then we sig- we signaled to them to say we we'd like to take a break now. You know, it'll be would you know we'd take a mini break or we'd take a big break. We had sort of two protocols yeah. um, for for that. <laughs> um, overall, we had sort of sixty sixty volunteers that were contributing to this this effort. So it was a, I think in the in the weeks that were running up towards the event. You know, in the months in the months running up to it, it was all about us figuring out the challenge and the rules and the training. But then in the weeks up to it, um, we'd already got the, the volunteer list down and written it all down and figured out who was going to be doing what. But then we started to realize as we started having these like 15 person team meetings, started to realize there was lots more people involved in this sort of really pulling a weight. Mm. And um, overall, there were sort of 60 named people that were, had a role to play at certain hours and, and stuff. And just I just wrote this piece about how it's a real community effort coming together here. And like, we, you know, we feel very honored that we've got this coming together. It might look like us on court, but it, this is a club effort. It's it's amazing what we're seeing mm. here. And 
I can't feel you know more more, more grateful, and you know, hopefully we won't lay down. Um, <laughs> yes. but... Well, the the uh, the YouTube footage I, I saw a little bit of it. Uh, it was I think it was more like the end, and uh, it, <laughs> I mean you guys could barely lift your rackets. <laughs> it, yeah. was, it was, but but you did. I mean you you were playing, and uh, how did it like in terms of the actual squash? Like uh, you, what from what you can recall, how how did it all start in terms of like you know energy wise? And then, like, did you have a plan just to sort of play some rallies or did you play seriously a little bit at the beginning or how, how did that uh, all play out? So, yeah, a few few phases we went through, to be honest with you. Like the, if I sort of give you a summary of the overall thing, then I'll sort of drill into certain areas. Sure. But yeah, yeah. Um, the first 10 to maybe 12 hours were borderline enjoyable. Like it's, it was a challenge, but it was, you know, it was, we we're still playing squash. It was still recognizable um and and, and and enjoyable so that was fairly easy to yeah. you know enjoy that coast through that it wasn't getting it wasn't particularly difficult uh we had like a nick hitting competition that we'd instructed the markers to sort of record if we hit nick like we we're having a bit of fun with it right uh, we weren't going off at any kind of pace uh, at that stage um we were aiming to achieve like 100 to 120 beats a minute okay all right just sort of just that that zone would be about right um then the 12 hour to the 32 hour which is the 20 hour period was miserable <laughs> it was just the yeah. most miserable and so so uh, yeah, describe that what what, what was the yeah. misery, uh where did that stem from <laughs> so just uh, the, the timing of the day is key so 4 a.m to 8 p.m the next day uh, so that's the 40 hour window um I, I didn't really realize this at the time until it happened but midnight is halfway there so after 12 hours from four from 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 4 a.m we're you're obviously looking at 4 p.m so this one it starts to get like physically tough and you know you start to ache in certain areas you're sort of picking up niggles and you're you're getting cramps and you're, you're getting hungry and you're, you're getting tired all that stuff um and there's a We've got this event planned through the night where we've got all the other courts are going to be occupied with a what we call a squashathon, with um, I think forty people were going to be playing in that, and that was going to be an eight eight pm to eight am sort of effort. So that had the club absolutely buzzing. Okay. Right? Yeah. So so eight pm and seven thirty pm as people start arriving for that, you get you're getting a real boost. But four pm to sort of seven thirty pm, you're it's just it's just all it's just tiring and awkward and you don't you, why we do we're, we're in the middle of this and it's not very nice so you then get a bit of a boost um at 8 p.m when they arrive then it gets towards the middle of the night now you've got a full club and the adrenaline and the crowd noise and the support is absolutely brilliant especially when you're hitting like hourly milestones you're getting your five minutes every hour chalked up as rest time on the board that is immense yeah. you know, you've got your, you've got your helper waving you along you've got you know, your sister-in-law is out the back. You can see her sleeping. That's a boost because you know she, cause she's kind of there. And, you know, my wife is there occasionally, not through the night. My main helper, Joni, who works for Intrepid as well, like amazing job project managing it, and is is there giving you a boost. Even she went to bed, right? She's off. So that you got all these emotions of you kind of half you feel supported, but you've got people leaving. Um, and just through the night, you're there's a sleep deprivation thing that kind of kicks in, but really honestly, that isn't a real challenge because you've got the adrenaline of playing. So yeah. there's no kind of like, I'm not, you're not like, Oh my God, just stay awake. <laughs> not really. <laughs> that didn't, didn't happen. No, didn't, didn't really feel like a risk. Um, but 
I don't know, these the, you get a real good crowd cheer every hour and you get a massive one at midnight because you're 20 hours in and you realise it's downhill from here. Um, so you just have to sort of just get yourself to these milestones and then take the adrenaline you get from the crowd and just use that to get to the next one. And I think, especially in the second half, you're just... Time is... It's your ability to just absorb time and for it to sort of seem like nothing to you. That's yeah. what makes it work. And it by the end, it just... We could see time passing on the clock, but it just <laughs> felt like minutes instead of hours. If you know what I mean, it was just bizarre. Your kind of perception of time changed um, in your favor um, to, really? to, okay. try and, to try and get through it. Yeah, it's really, really, really weird. Really weird. Um, but you get like these... I, I kind of... it's really, I knew that seeing people out the back would really boost me. And I had mentally in my head, I knew when people would be showing up just approximately in time of day, like for what event and stuff. Yeah, and my elder siblings, who were featured in my earlier squash club founding story, who lived in the caravan, uh, two of them were on holiday in Ireland, but they were getting in in time to kind of sort of watch the second half, and they arrived at eleven thirty p.m. So to see my sort of brother and my sister arrive together and be there earlier than expected as well, just before midnight, it's just amazing to yeah, see yeah. The, to see familiar faces coming in. Um, All these little then, things injected energy throughout the yeah these key periods near the nearing yeah, yeah. the the finish line the and the ability for that ad- adrenaline you get from 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 that um to mask pain i it's a magical thing honestly you're in so much pain you've got so many blisters you can't you can't walk you can barely walk or lift the racket but then you get a you get an adrenaline boost and it, you just it just all goes away um yeah. and the the length of time that starts to work for diminishes and diminishes and diminishes. So the, you, know, you get a five ten minute boost initially, but then you you're down to like a adrenaline boost. Yes, we've made it to you know thirty five hours. Uh, yes, loads of cheering, and you've got like this thirty second boost. Mm-hmm. Um, and then yeah, it's, it's, it's well, funny. Uh, I was uh, I mean this is kind of beside the point, but I was in the gym the other day and I was doing these uh, doing this really hard run and trying to trying to run a, like a really fast 5k and i was i was just about ready to quit i mean i, I had like i don't know another k to go i was going well but i i was just really sore and tired and exhausted then my friend walked into the gym and i've sprinted to the end it was like nothing nice you know yeah. what i mean like, I, I, it's i mean yeah. I, I attribute <laughs> i do know what you mean <laughs> a second win that, that's a second wind right uh and it's all mental isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, so uh, I guess a couple more things towards the end of that. Uh, we we didn't plan, after the squashathon ended at 8am, we didn't realise how dead the club would be and how low we would be feeling at that point. So the club absolutely emptied out and we had nothing planned, no event, no, like, no, no one to even come and be there. Sorry, obviously all the volunteers were, were there and the team was there, but there was no sort of social activity or anyone else um right and it was we had a skeleton staff at that point right it was coming off the night shift so that was low because we had four hours of not even knowing if the sun had come up just being it was very 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 dark and tiring that 8 a.m to 12 midday um period yeah but i think when we got to midday we're eight hours away 
which at that point, having come through the previous 32, yeah, it's, we, we can make it. We can make it. And then the club started filling up eventually with yeah. the, you know, the finale um, and all of that activity. And it was absolutely packed by the end. And But, but at the, the end, the contrast of just having all of that adrenaline of the, all the crowd noise, everyone screaming that we'd, we'd broken the record and, you know, and we still broke the record at 38, still wanted to get to 40. Those last two hours, it felt like 10 minutes. Amazing. It was, yeah. it was unbelievable. The, the feeling you, you just, just, and yeah, I can't really put it into words when it's with you. It's, um, well, the, uh, what, I, what an accomplishment. I mean, uh, just the, the way you, uh, you, you told that story, it's inspiring stuff. And I, I bet you, uh, if anyone's listening out there now, they'll, this is going to plant a seed and you're going to have some uh, competition, uh, which I'm sure you'll invite. You no. Know, yeah. You know? Absolutely. Yeah. No, I, I, I've mixed feelings about all this and um, it, the records are there to be broken though. So oh, I'd yeah. welcome anyone yeah. to, have, to have a go. Uh, and I, if, if, would you do it again? Would I do it again? <laughs> I would like to be, if I was going to be involved again, I would like a more of a managerial sort of project manager role, <laughs> I think. Because <laughs> uh, yeah. well, you say that now, but then when uh, when someone goes out there and uh, beats your record by a couple of hours, you might uh, think differently. Uh, I you, might. Yeah. I might. I know. Yeah, I know you're you're a competitive guy. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but uh, I was just just. Uh, I mean, you've been great with your time, uh, Alex. Just in terms of. Uh, you know, the aftermath. I mean, I did see some pictures of, uh, you know, what you had to go through in the aftermath there. Just talk about that, uh, sort of what was, uh, what was that like? And was there a period of recovery and how long was that? How long did that take? Um, yeah. So, well, uh, I suppose just immediately after, uh, just we have to mention this, not for sponsorship reasons, but the, the, the chairman of the club did bring us on a Guinness each, which we, we drank we drank oh, we drank on the court i guess we got special dispensation for alcohol on the court as well which was nice yeah. that that uh that was nice to drink but then we I just sat around just chatting and getting congratulated by a kid's game to hug you as if you're a celebrity it was like really surreal um but we were sat there for 90 minutes again that felt like three and a half minutes we were sat there but we were there for for 90 just absorbing up the atmosphere and and, and just beginning to rest um we had a it was the 50th year of the club um, being in existence, so there was a, a party and a disco as well. So I uh, went through, <laughs> tried to get involved in that. You went and to I the had, disco, did you? Went, I did that? actually. No, this I did. Better. I did. <laughs> I did, and I think it's, to account for that adrenaline, I still had a lot of that adrenaline going on. And um, having a dance was it's quite a lot more fun than, than than playing squash at that point. So my body was like quite quite up for it. Um, not for any length of time, but had several dances and several more Guinness and um, get showering was was tiring and difficult, but you know did, did that and then had a had a dance and um, that was that was really cool. So got to bed probably about midnight, eleven thirty midnight, um, and yeah, this is when it it gets interesting. Um, so I was told to elevate my legs, which is probably a good idea. So I lie in bed and we build this sort of cushion situation so that the legs could be elevated and i drop straight off to sleep obviously thankfully and then i i wake i wake having almost a surreal nightmare in the middle of the night as if i'm attached to an intricate life support machine and um but my i'm completely paralyzed my i can't move my legs so my legs are in utter pain but i can't kick cushions cushions away i just physically can't get 
recruitment over my legs to, to do anything. So I had to wake my wife up and help me to to unstiffen my legs and and kick the cushions away and just change position. But that was that was pretty frightening because that was actually quite well, extreme wasn't, pain. That wasn't like a cramp or anything. That was just. I think it could have been like just literal full body cramp. Yeah, like every <laughs> single muscle was done. So what are you going to do? You haven't got other muscles that you can use to decramp the, the cramping ones. So right. you're screwed, right? <laughs> uh, so then uh, the next day, woke up pretty early, uh, actually, and just hobbled down the stairs. And I, I'm not going to lie, I just sat in the hot tub for about seven hours. Right. And that was it. That was my that was seven sort of hours. My, couple of Guinness. Yeah, a couple more Guinness. <laughs> it was a relaxing, a boozy day, I must admit. Um, but then I think what you're asking is how, what was the path back? Like? Yeah. Um, so I would say, like, getting back on court for the first time after maybe seven to ten days uh, was probably as miserable as any of the experience on court. The, uh, it was every single strike of the ball, every single step was utter misery. There was just so much um, pain and fatigue in every, every single area of the body. Yeah, obviously that gradually dissipates. Go on court, you know, once every few days, to just try and get back up to it. And it was five to six weeks before I could honestly say I'm playing with no, no ailments, no pain. Right. So, it, so quite, quite a lot, quite a lot, a lot of weeks. But then I, you know, after that, I was, I was feeling perfectly fine again. Yeah. Well, you think about it. I mean, squash uh, an hour of squash, or some people feel it the next day, <laughs> let alone forty hours. Yeah, so yeah. I guess I felt it for about forty <laughs> days then. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, uh, so Alex, uh, just uh, just in terms of uh, you know going forward, uh, what's next? Uh, is there anything with with the record now, or with the uh, you know with Florence Nightingale uh, with with the hospice charity that you want to uh, to mention before we uh, finish up? Yeah, yeah. No, thanks. A couple of things. So the the foundation we created, uh, Begondal Care Foundation. You know, website's launching any any day now. Uh, we've got it all drafted. That's the the foundation. We're gonna we're gonna try and run these types of events and challenges for other people going forward and underwrite the their ability to 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 kick them off and and commit to them. Um, okay. Yeah. So there's a, there's a few things in the pipeline. There's there's lots of different events in the in the pipeline over the next several years that we've we've got planned. But a couple of headliners. Um, so my my brother, who was there, came at midnight and supported for the for the next twenty four hours. Um, he was um, he's keen to do the Atlantic row, so he's going to row from the Canary Islands to Antigua. Oh wow! In in a four person ocean going rowing boat. So the foundation is investing in the in the boat required to do that. Um, it's like a not, we're not entirely buying it, but we're, we're one of the main sort of sponsors. Uh, he's got other sponsors, but for 50 grand boat is required to, to okay. do that. That's, that's tons of training. So that's kicking off in uh, late 2025. Yeah. Um, he's the next squash player as well, obviously. Okay. Um, Greg Collins. Um, then uh, it's another world record. Uh, it's very squash themed, but mm. I'd love to. It's more of an administration based one it's trying to put on the largest ever squash tournament oh wow okay so we want to try so is, and achieve... uh, is that sort of in its infancy now or uh, uh so i've validated with i've lodged the the record with guinness i've understood all the rules i've got a plan and i've got several people who have been had roles attached to their names mm-hmm. and committed to to helping out not least mike who was a deal that if i do the challenge with you you're going to run you're going to project manage this next thing i've got um 
So well, it's, I, I, I hope you, what I'll do is that what we can do is we can share all this stuff in the bio for, for the podcast and uh, upload the, the links and, yep. all, and all of that. And uh, we'll get uh, maybe some other people that you know, might be keen just to read about it and maybe even try to contribute in some way. Yeah, fa- absolutely fantastic. It's going to be a, a massive community effort to, to make anything like that happen. We're currently eyeing up 2025 um, for that as well. And it, it doesn't have to run all in one weekend, obviously. It's going to run over several months. Oh, it's right. just one one coordinated single draw, single winner, multiple clubs, multiple venues. Um, but yeah, there's, there's one draw, one winner. That's the, that's the challenge. And every every match officiated. As okay well. well as that as that draws near we'll uh we'll have you back on to uh to lay it all out for us fantastic fantastic brilliant alex well and then, uh, just in brief, anything else <laughs> yeah I, I've, just the the fact the intersection of squash and technology has been uh yeah i have a career in technology and uh, love of squash i've managed to found a company that's dedicated to increasing core utilization uh, we've okay. built uh, an automated club management system that aims to integrate all of your systems that a club would need a racket club would need to to manage itself but also connect clubs together so there's a whole fascinating thing that's the vision is to increase court utilization so i'd love to talk to you about that one day as well yeah let's do that actually uh the guy uh that was on the panel rob eberhardt i don't know if you know him but i think he's involved in something similar to that so i'll you know connect you with rob and uh uh, i'm sure he'd be really keen to to talk about that kind of stuff uh, with you, but uh, Alex, fantastic to see you, and uh, you know all the best with everything. And that that congratulations on the world record. That that's a fascinating, uh, amazing uh, story, and uh, I can't believe that you actually did it, but you did. And uh, to you and your it was a Mike, right? Your your Mike Mike yeah, Pierce. All, yeah. yeah, congrats to the both of you. Yeah, no, thank you very much, Joe, for having me on. It's been really good to see you. And I will say, like, the job you're doing with squ- in, within Squash is is phenomenal. Um, oh. yeah, I think you've, you've got this global phenomenal and you've got such good names coming on. And uh, mm. well, I'm really impressed. And, and thank you. Well, thank you, man. And uh, definitely let's uh, let's have you back on to, uh, to discuss these other initiatives uh, going forward. Thanks, Jerry. Well, what a great story that was. Uh, really great catching up with Alex and um, and hopefully we can flesh out some of the other game growth initiatives that he and his partners have in the hopper. It sounds exciting and I look forward to having Alex back on uh, very, very soon. For details and links related to uh, the world record and the Florence Nightingale Hospice Charity, I'll be including those in all the bios uh, to this episode. Uh, now, I just want to talk a little bit uh, about Canary Wharf. What an incredible event. Filled to the rafters from day one. A testament to what um, what Alan Thatcher has built there with that event over the years. You don't see that very often. The squash was... Uh, was absolutely fantastic and intriguing uh, from the word go. A great win, a tremendous win for Paul Cole. Who can use that one to get back on track? Um, I mean, he sort of fallen off a little bit. Uh, obviously, getting uh, to the semis in most most events, anyways. But uh, you know, having uh, reached the pinnacle, I'm sure that uh, you know his sights are set on getting that uh, number one spot back, and he's on his way with a big win there at Canary Wharf. Impressive win uh, against uh, Ali. Farag, who was looking like he might be back to fighting fit again, but Cole played a great match there. And then again in the final, uh, against perhaps uh, the PSA Player of the Month, you many might argue, Joel Macon. He had... Uh, 
Paul had the wherewithal to uh, withstand a bit. Uh, you know, Joel came out strong there in the first game, uh, but then uh, uh, Cole, I guess, would have gone to uh, Plan B or Plan C and let his squash do the talking. After that, a classy, classy performance from Paul Cole, and congratulations to him and his team, including uh, Rob Owen, his coach, who was there in the gallery, uh, behaving himself in the front row. Uh, no alcohol, uh, I noticed there. So well done to uh, Paul Cole and well done to his team and congratulations. Now, Joel Macon pretty much was shot out of a cannon uh, from the word go. Uh, most impressive to me was uh, obviously his win against Diego Elias and uh, he went out there and really disrupted uh, Diego's rhythm. Uh, that was the most impressive win to me. Diego must, you would think, heading into that event and uh, given the, how well and how successful he's been and how close he is right now to number one, you would think that um, he would have felt poised to make serious inroads towards that number one spot. Uh, now, I've heard a few people uh, in the aftermath of the event uh, that saying that Diego uh, really wasn't prepared, but I can't imagine... Uh, why he wouldn't want to be. I mean, he's so close to number one right now. Why would you take your eye off the prize? Uh, given, given, you know, you've got yourself a chance to to get to world number one. It really was there for the taking. Uh, obviously, he's going to learn from this if he wasn't prepared and uh, hopefully come back to playing the great squash that, uh, that he's been playing uh, for the past uh, several months, really. Uh, making... Making himself, he's been taking a bit of criticism for how he handled himself in the Assal match. Uh, obviously, there was a lot going on there. Um, now, I don't blame him uh, for a lot of the antics uh, necessarily, although he may have gotten carried away. I think, uh, obviously, his plan was to, you know, uh, no pun intended, take the bull by the horns, uh, literally. Uh, so many players, uh, when they play us all, uh, it, from my view anyways, they get carried away. They you know, start rolling around on the floor, crying, complaining. Some of it comes across as a bit of play acting. And when it comes to nav uh, you know, play acting, when it comes to navigating what they have to do to to deal with, with Mustafa Assal. But, uh, but Joel took it to Assal and went at him and bullied him a bit mentally, I think. Uh, I think that's where the issues a lot of people have with, uh, with how he handled himself in that match. The ball change at the beginning of the fifth, uh, that was very, very strange to me. Uh, Joel uh, is... a. Kind of, I don't think he has a lot of respect for Mustafa. Obviously, you know, judging from his comments after the making, sorry, after the moment uh, victory, and then again after his victory over um, <clears throat> over Mustafa, where he basically said he'll he'll be ready to play some clean squash uh, now that he's disposed of Mustafa. Uh, but that really sort of you know that that sort of mentality. Uh, led into uh, into the match against Mustafa. He's played him before, dealt with the the issues that he finds are are difficult to deal with. Um, and uh, and having lost, I'm sure, a few times, he decided he needed to take a different path. Um, now, at the end of the day, uh, to me anyways, uh, it's up to uh, it's up to the officials to deal with that kind of stuff, and uh, particularly with that ball incident in, in the fifth game. Mazzarella, uh, John Mazzarella, uh, who I've had on the podcast, great guy. Um, not sure what he was uh, what he was up to. Uh, he definitely lost the plot there. Um, not sure why he didn't allow us all to check the ball. Um, 
I guess uh, Joel got caught up, you know, in the heat of the moment. He got uh, Joel may have gotten carried away, threw the ball up to uh, Mazzarella or someone in the crowd without uh, allowing us all who had asked to have a look at the ball, and he wouldn't give uh, wouldn't give the ball to us all. Mazzarella could have easily dealt with that. I mean, in the heat of the moment, uh, particularly given the history of uh, you know what's gone on with uh, with us all and make an end and uh, us all sort of. Uh, you know the history that he's had with many players and officials on the tour the official has to take the initiative there and and he's there to temper uh, these types of situations I couldn't believe it though I mean Masrata he kind of played along with it Uh, really disgraceful uh, in that moment I think uh, on his part now personally um you know, maybe Joel was wrong, but I don't blame him for getting caught up in the moment. Uh, he had a game plan, and somehow perhaps he felt he didn't want to extend any uh, any olive branches at that time. Uh, so, yeah, he definitely probably got carried away. But uh, I think by giving in or maybe extending an olive branch, he's going to uh, take his eye off the prize. The officials, again, they have to step in and take care of those situations properly and not play along with it. Uh, and I'm not sure why Mazzarella didn't uh, sort of step in there. But uh, anyways, regardless, a great event for Joel. He took out, uh, he looks so strong and he's definitely upped his game over the past couple of months, uh, you know, taking out Elias and then uh, Diego Elias, Tarek Momin. He looked very good there. Uh, he had a game plan against Mustafa, Saul, as I said, and uh he went at he he went at it in a different way, and I think uh, in some ways there's a bit of a template there. We don't want all the matches to look like that, but we also uh, I think a lot of players they they might take something away from that and. Uh, you know, sort of go out there and take the bull by the horns and don't start rolling around on the floor and complaining to referees. Take matters into your own hands. That's not really how that, that played out really with um, with making end us all, but I think that was kind of the, the idea that Joel had in mind to sort of take matters uh, into his own hands, and he certainly did that. Uh, and again, congratulations to Paul Cole. Classy, classy performances throughout that event, particularly uh, in the final and against uh, Ali Farag. And it's good to see Ali, by the way, uh, looking healthy and uh, ready to, to challenge for that number one spot again. And finally, just a shout-out to the great Alan Thatcher for demonstrating uh, how a world-class event should be run. Uh, he's apparently officially now retired from it all, and what a way to do it. Uh, I'd say that was mic drop style from Alan. Uh, all the best to him in his retirement. Many thanks, everybody out there, uh, for listening to the pod as well. Uh, we've got uh, Jethro Bins coming up uh, very soon to talk about the Squash Skills Power documentary, which is going to be absolutely amazing. I, I've had the you know, the good fortune of seeing part one and it's Netflix worthy. I mean, this stuff is fantastic. JP, uh, as we all know, is box office both on and off the court. And in this case, we've got the the best of both worlds. We've got JP footage from on the court and JP off the court, uh, you know, uh, with the the documentary style uh, thing that's being put out here by Squash Skills. So really good stuff. Looking forward to that and looking forward to uh, talking to Jethro about uh, the up that that uh, first documentary and then also the two more that are upcoming so stay tuned for that one and hopefully we've got a few more surprises uh, coming up as well so stay tuned for those many thanks again for listening everybody all the best with your squash and we'll be talking to you uh, very very soon
Goodbye now.